pronouns. I am not giving an English lesson. But, you know, pronouns are very small words in languages, but really, really important words to a language. If you looked up in a dictionary what a pronoun is, you'd find a a definition something like this, that they are relationship words or signal words that assume the function of a noun. Of course, now you have to know what a noun is, but we're not going to go there. But we know pronouns are words like I, he, and you, and there's a long list of those kind of words. Specifically, the word his is defined as, you know, it is used to indicate possession or belonging to or made by him. In Paul's letter to the Ephesians, the word his is used 34 times, 34 times in the small letter to the Ephesians, six little chapters, and 26 times of those 34 times, it is addressing matters belonging to and done by God. So therefore, most of the time that you read the word his, when you are meditating on the Holy Spirit's words that Paul penned there in the letter to the Ephesians, most of the time it is talking about something that's relating to God. And so there's a number of times that that is found, such as this list. And some of these words are repeated. We're talking about his will and his grace and his blood his inheritance, his right hand, his body. And you can look at that list and see all those different ways the word his is used to identify something that belongs to or is done by God. Another trivial fact related to numbers, and that is that most of these 26 times are found in the first three chapters. That's where the focus of this is in those first three chapters. Well, we're not going to cover all of those usage of the word his and how that applies to us and what that means to us. We're going to focus on just three this morning. In Ephesians 1, chapter 1 of Ephesians, as we have read already a portion of that, Paul prayed that Christians' hearts would be enlightened. Paul prayed that Christians' hearts would be illuminated with deeper understanding. He wants that he's praying that these saints of, of God, that these brethren of his, would know something. He says, I'm praying that you're going to know some things. And we're going to focus on simply verse 18 and 19 this morning. As we read again those two verses, it says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe these in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. So you notice how many times the word his is used there. And so it all applies to matters that belong to God. It relates to God, who he is and what he's done. 
And we're going to focus on that this morning in these verses. So he begins by saying, I'm praying that you may be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling. Now, for you who are taking notes, this is my last slide. And so you're not going to get a lot of, of other points because I want you to focus on the text and just listen as we meditate on these words. God's calling. He says, I want you to know what the hope of his calling is. I want you to know what the hope of God's calling is. What is a calling? Well, for most of us in this auditorium, as students of God and students of the English language, we know that the word calling can be used a number of different ways. We know that. And we also know we're not talking about calling somebody on the phone. That's not what this calling is. Nor are we talking about the fact that you can call out someone's name. You know, that's not the calling he's talking about. But rather the word calling here is being used in the sense as defined, you know, also in our English dictionaries as an invitation, a summons, a vocation. And so what we have here, when you talk about God's calling, it's his calling. It's not my calling. It's God's calling. And so we're talking about a divine summons and a divine vocation to accept spiritual blessings and to uphold spiritual responsibilities. This is God's calling that Paul's praying about. And he's praying about this calling on behalf of the saints, our ancient brethren in Ephesus. The scriptures teach that God through his son, Jesus Christ, calls all men. He invites and he summons all men through his gospel. And one place that that clearly is brought out is over in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. So very quickly in the second chapter of 2 Thessalonians, Paul's second letter to these saints, these Christians in that city, beginning in there, verse 13, he says, we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you, speaking to those Christians, God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. Now, verse 14, it was for this he called you. Through our gospel that you may gain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. God called them and God still calls us today through the gospel. He does not call us through dreams and visions. He does not call us through some soft voice. He doesn't call us simply through some experience. God calls us through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's how you are called. So God invites and summons you, me, and everybody else in the world and will do so to the end of time through the gospel. The good news of Jesus needs to be preached because that's how God calls. 
The good news of Jesus needs to be sounded forth. It needs to be echoed to everybody. And Paul commends the brethren Thessalonica for doing that very thing. Over in the first letter, chapter 1, verse 8, Paul, in complimenting them, he says, The word of the Lord has sounded forth from you. In Macedon- not only in Macedonia and Achaia, that's where the region where they were from. Not only has you preached the message through this region where you, where you live, but he says, in every place your faith toward God has gone forth. And so God was calling men through the gospel, through using messengers, that is his people, to speak. Speak and preach and teach the good news of Jesus. And why is that? Very simply because there's power in that message. That message is the living words of God, and it is that power of God contained in that message that saves believers. And so this call through the gospel, you know, from God, that's coming from God. So this call from God, you know, brings saved believers into a relationship, though. That God calls us, invites us, summons us into a relationship. And so the saved believers enter this relationship, enter this fellowship with the Father, with the Son, and with the Holy Spirit, wherein now we participate in something very important. That we are part of something very meaningful now. And so Paul says to these saints, these Christians in Ephesus, who were called by the gospel, Paul went there and others went there, preached the gospel there. Those converts share, continue to share that gospel. And so the body of Christ in that city, you know, is, you know, he's, I'm praying for you that you will know, that you may know the hope of God's calling. So they are part of something now. They were called through the gospel, but now they're part of a calling. And so when a believer obediently responds to the gospel's call, he enters or takes on a vocation now. So we go from a summons and invitation to the idea of now we are part of a calling. We're part of a vocation And we define the term vocation by our English dictionaries as it could be a career, it could mean a profession, or it could mean an occupation. And so we are part of a divine profession now, and we are part of a divine occupation. That is, we're to occupy ourselves with things that are of God. We are to occupy ourselves with things that belong to God. So like Jesus, our king, our savior, our advocate, like him, we are to be about now our father's will. We are to be about our father's business. Because that's what the, the calling of God is all about. It's his calling. It's not our calling. He's called us, yes, through the gospel. And we respond to that through an obedient faith. But now we're part of something that is God's calling. It is God's vocation. This divine calling involves the fact that we are to be 
necessary contributing parts of something. We are to be necessary. We are necessary contributing components of God's family. We are necessary contributing components of God's sanctuary. And we are necessary and contributing components of God's mission. And through the Spirit, the Holy Spirit will use Paul as the writer to expound on that in the letter to the Ephesians. He will expound on what is involved in this calling that is God's calling and now they're part of. For example, we see the idea of the vocation, the work that is involved in there, and just using a couple of passages in Ephesians. In Ephesians 2, for example, in Ephesians 2, verse 10, it's talking about just the, the amazing power that is being accomplished through God's grace that enables us now to be alive in Christ. We were dead, but now we live, live alive in Christ. And then verse 10, for we are his workmanship. There's another another his. This is God's workmanship. And so now we are, because of God's mercy and God's grace and God's love and everything that God has done for us and through us because of Jesus, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. There is your occupation. There's your vocation. It's God's calling. And he says, I want you to know, I want you to understand, I want you to be enlightened about the hope of this calling. That's God's calling. You are now part of God's workmanship, created for good works, which God prepared beforehand that which, beforehand so that we would walk in them. Another just example of that. In Ephesians 4. We were there this morning in our class. Ephesians 4, just going to look at a couple verses. Verse 1, it begins by saying, Therefore I, the prisoner of Jesus, that's Paul, implore you, okay, to walk. You know, so there's a certain manner of life, there's a certain way of living that needs to be occupying you now, that displays the kind of profession that you are part of now. He says, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. You're part of a calling because God called you into that calling. In chapter 4, we'll expound on a number of things that apply to that. I just want to just point out very briefly, verse 16, to illustrate the idea that this is, where, oh, this is what God's calling is about. Verse 16, he says, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. This divine calling that we're part of now involves the idea that my, my spiritual vocation, my life profession now is not my earthly career. That's not what my life vocation is, my life calling. It's not some great accomplishment that I may achieve in this physical world. That's not what it's about. 
It's the fact that I'm part of now something that is so much bigger than myself. I am part of something that's so much bigger than this world. It's God's calling, and it's a calling where I am part of something as a necessary contributing component of his family, his sanctuary, his mission. Now, this calling of godliness, it's God's calling. This calling of godliness produces what? It produces a confident expectation. He says, I want you to know what the hope of God's calling is. That's what I want you to know. It's God's calling, and with that calling, this calling of godliness, there is this confident expectation, which the Hebrew writer tells us over in chapter 6, verse 19 and 20, that it is a sure thing, this hope. It is a steadfast thing, this hope. This confident expectation that is linked to God's calling, God's summoning, and God's profession, and God's vocation that I'm part of now. It's linked to the fact that now, now there is a great confident expectation that is a sure thing, it's a steadfast thing, because, not because David Bunting is great, no. Not because David Bunting has accomplished great earthly achievements, no. It is a sure and steadfast thing because of what Jesus did. That's why. Because he entered within or behind the veil for us. And Paul says to the saints then, to the saints today, to you and me as well, he says, I, I want you to know, I want you to really know what is the hope of God's calling? Verse 18 goes on to say, not only does he want to know about this hope of God's calling, but also he says, I want you to know about what? He wants you to know about the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. I want you to know about this great calling that is God's. And I want you to I want you to also I want you to know about this great inheritance that is God's. Now we define the word inheritance as something received, it may be property, it may be money, we're talking about earthly things, but it's something that we receive from a predecessor because if we, if we are to receive that, we have the right of an heir. And what that means, we are entitled. We are the entitled person, you know, to receive this gift upon the death of another. And so we understand that concept of an inheritance that may be coming to us. But notice what it says here. He says, I want you to know what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. When it suggests to you that God is the heir here, he's the heir. Why? Well, because he is the one who has the right to receive glory. He has the right to receive honor. 
He has the right to receive power. And there's a number of passages that truly bring out that idea, the kind of praise that all creation and all living things ought to give to the creator. But also he has the right to receive people because all things were created by him and all things are created for him. Now, we understand God ultimately is the giver. He's the giver. And in a sense, he's the predecessor. He's the giver of all good things. And that is true. And we need to recognize that. And we need to acknowledge that. And it needs to temper our overflowing attitude of gratitude and giving of thanks. He is the giver of all good things. Everything God has ever done is good. It's good. And he is also the one who is continuing to do good at all times. For example, Romans 7 talks about the goodness of God's law, the goodness of God's commandments. And so God's law and commandments are good. Every law of God is good. The laws of the Old Testament were good. The laws in Christ are good you know, these, these are good things. Also, God's judgments are good as well. And the psalmist brings that out quite clearly. And so blessings ever flow from heaven's throne. But the Almighty is not only the giver, but also he is the recipient as well. Do you notice here in this particular verse, verse 19 of Ephesians, excuse me, verse 18 of Ephesians 1, that it says God's inheritance is in the saints. It doesn't say God's inheritance is for the saints. That's not what it says here. Here it's in the saints. Now, other scriptures clearly in discussing the subject of inheritance and particularly, and teaches regarding the fact that the, it talks about the inheritance which saints will receive. That is true. Yeah. Yeah. We will receive an inheritance. We are promised an inheritance. We are heirs with the Son of God. That is all true. For an example of that is in Acts, you know, Acts you know, 20. In verse 28, excuse me, in verse 32, where it talks about the power of the word of God's grace, which is able to build you up. And so this word of God's grace is able to build you up. It's going to help you grow. But also, it is able to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. And so, saints are going to receive an inheritance, and that's true. But in Ephesians 1.18... Paul says, I want you to know, I want you to be enlightened about the fact what is the riches of the glory of God's inheritance in the saints. In the end, in the end, when time is no more, and the great day of the Lord has arrived, and what a great day and glorious day that will be for all who are in Christ Jesus throughout time. All the faithful ones. 
that Paul, in discussing the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of all humanity one day, speaks of the kingdom in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, in verse 24, when he says, then comes the end. When he talks about, okay, at the coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ, then comes the end when he hands over what? He's going to hand over the kingdom to the God and Father when he has abolished all rule and authority and power. God is going to receive something here. God has an inheritance too. You have an inheritance in Christ, but so does God. And God's inheritance is in the saints. You think about that. The kingdom of Christ, that unshakable kingdom of Christ, over which Christ reigns, he's the king of kings, he's the Lord of lords, and he says and when the end comes, he's going to take that kingdom that he's been ruling and he's saving, he's going to hand it over to the Father. Because that's God's inheritance. Jehovah, one day, is going to be glorified in his chosen inheritance. Saints are a precious possession. You, in Christ, are precious to God. And he longs for the day that we will be united in him. You think about the whole scheme of redemption, the whole plan of God to save the lost. And you could ask them, well, how much does your creator and your redeemer love you? More than you realize. More than you can comprehend. We try to comprehend it, but he loves us so much more than we truly comprehend. And Paul's prayer here in first, uh, first chapter of Ephesians implies that we all need enlightenment. We all need to be enlightened about different things that the word of God teaches us, reveals us, and shows us. And one thing he says, I'm praying that those saints would be enlightened, was about this glorious wealth of God's inheritance that is found among those who are sanctified. That's where God's inheritance lies. It's in the saints. It is in those who are in Christ and complete in Christ. It is in those who are his children. You know, we sometimes challenge one another as we call for spiritual self-reflection and examination from time to time. And we may ask the question, where is your treasure? Jesus taught that where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And so we, we ask that question, rightfully so, from time to time. But there's another question that we can ask ourselves today in light of this text. Where is God's treasure? Where is God's treasure? In whom does God treasure? It's in the great riches of the glory of his inheritance in his saints. In Revelation chapter 7, John was shown a vision, a vision of those who had been washed by the 
by the Lamb's blood, and they have come through a great tribulation, and they are now standing victoriously before the throne, praising him and singing salvation to, to the one who sits on the throne and to the Lamb of God. And what a beautiful vision John sees and then shares. And what he is seeing there is the riches of the glory of God's inheritance in his saints. And the Spirit wants us to know this and be enlightened about what that is. And thirdly and lastly, he wants us to know about God's power. He says, verse 19, what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe these in accordance with the working of the strength in his might? We know that God, our creator, is omnipotent. There is no, there is no measure to the power. He is all powerful. We know that. No one, nothing compares to God. And he cannot be measured quantitatively, can he? There's no kind of measurement that we have, how minuscule we can measure something or how great we can measure something. Nothing in this universe measures the power of God. He is omnipotent. He is the almighty. And we need to be impressed by that. We ought to be totally impressed at all with divine power. But it is this divine power which has made available all spiritual blessings to and for sanctified believers. God's power has done that. Not only did God's power speak the universe into existence, but it is God's power and the power of him speaking and carrying out his will that he has made available to you all spiritual blessings in Christ in the heavenlies. And here in this one verse, God's greatness is being communicated. And Paul says, I want you to know how great this really is. Interestingly, there are four words here that all emphasize in one way or another power. You have the word power, which is the dunameos, where we get our word dynamite. And then you got the word working there, in accordance with the working, which is the word energeion, which we get the word energy. And then you got the word strength, which is uh, kratos, which is the idea of the presence of supreme force that's inherent in his attribute, which is a word that is never used in the scriptures about men. This word is only used when talking about God. And then you got the word might, ischios, which is the ability or force to overcome or to con. And so he says, I want you to know what is the surpassing greatness. Now, there, there are some adjectives there. I want you to know the surpassing greatness of his power. He says, and this is in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he goes on to say, when he raised up Christ from the dead, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Sovereign omnipotence raised Jesus from the dead. Sovereign omnipotence seated the Christ at his right hand in the heavenlies. And, and who did he do this for? 
Who did he do this for? Verse 19 again. Take note. Toward us who believe. He did it for you. He did it for me. And Paul says to Christians, then, and even still today, because it is the living word of God, it is the sword of the Spirit, and he says, I want you to know the surpassing greatness of God's power and God's might. That is why Paul, in his last epistle that he penned, as far as we know, His last epistle in 2 Timothy chapter 1 would say, I know, in verse 12, I know in whom I have believed. Paul had no doubts. He had no question in whom he believed. And he could go on to say in the very same verse, he says, I know whom I believed and that he is able. He is able to do what? He's able to guard what I have entrusted to him unto that day. Whenever that day comes, I know in whom I believe, and he is able to guard what I've entrusted to him. How can he know that? Because he had been enlightened. He had come to know as he prayed what is the hope of God's calling. And he come to know What are the riches of the glory of God's inheritance in the saints? And he come to know what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. He come to know that. And and by the Spirit, he urges us, even still today, to seek that same kind of understanding and depth of comprehension. God is able God is faithful. God reconciles. God justifies. And that's why he would write in his first letter to Timothy in chapter 1, verse 15 and 16, talk about his own conversion and what a conversion it was because what a man he was in his past and he was not that man anymore. And so he says in verse 15, it is a trustworthy statement deserving Full acceptance that Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners. That's why Jesus came. To save sinners. Among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason, he goes on to say, I found mercy. Even Paul, even Paul was shown mercy. And was bestowed grace. Yet for this reason, I found mercy so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Paul says, I know in whom I believe now. I know him. And I know he is able. He had confident expectations. Not because of his own greatness, his own doing, but because of the one in whom he believed. 
that he understood the idea of what God's calling is. He understood who God's inheritance is. And he understood that all of that was made possible and is still possible because of God's power and might. Will you believe in him for eternal life? Paul says, my life is a testimony to you that you can be saved. But you have to believe in Jesus Christ just like Paul had to believe in Jesus Christ. And by faith, you have to respond to the call of the gospel. And God is calling you right now with the good news of Jesus Christ and the salvation that is in him. We believe in him for eternal life. We believe in his words, which are the words of eternal life. In faith, if you will repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins, you will be forgiven and you will be saved. It's that simple. But you have to believe it. And you have to act upon it. Because God is that loving. And God is that powerful. Whatever spiritual needs you may have this morning, we invite you to please come forward, make your wishes known, or stand to sing the song of this song.